0: Hi, and welcome to another installment of the George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing, presented by the Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and to answer key questions about the role of law in addressing the pandemic going forward. My name is Leo Bieletsky. I'm a professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University. And today, I'm joined by Amy Kopczynski, who is a professor Of Law and uh, the Faculty Director of Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale Law School, um, as well as Greg Gonzalez, who is the um, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Yale and a co director for the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I wanted to start off by um, kind of a a broad strokes question um, to Amy and and Greg, you can chime in as, as appropriate about kind. Kind of the policy and legal narratives that we tell about how our world is organized and the way that we can use the understanding. And, and you've been very active at um, creating a, a sort of a novel um, field of legal analysis uh, focused on law and political economy, which in many ways um, sort of challenges the accepted narratives about the um, the role of markets and uh, uh, the role that law plays in enforcing or regulating those markets. Um, So can you just briefly talk about that worldview? um, And then we'll talk about how that applies to the current pandemic.
1: One way to get some insight into what is going on under the rubric of law and political economy scholarship is to take a look at the blog that we, um, with a number of other people, produced called the Law and Political Economy blog, super easy to find. And um, that was actually one of the uh, convening points for what I think we're thinking of as a school of legal scholarship. And um, really, the, the the moment that a lot of this started to come together um, was after both, you know, the crisis in 2008, the financial crisis, the kind of rising uh, acute awareness of the problem of of heightened inequality, and also concentration of corporate power, um, kind of hollowing out of democracy, and then the, the Trump election. Um, kind of in the wake of all that, I started teaching a course called Law and Political Economy and we created this blog. And the broad project um, and the reason to pick the term political economy is to rethink um, the relationship between politics and the economy, pushing back against some kind of conventional narratives that got deeply embedded in both legal scholarship and in policy land um, that we think had a lot to do with, in fact, the hollowing out of democracy, rising inequality, concentration of corporate power, and so forth. And these are really a bunch of narratives about markets, what they are, how they work that come out of you know, some of you out there may be familiar with the kind of academic literature about neoliberalism. So a lot of the work that we're doing is picking up both on on, um, work on the history of capitalism um, and um, ideas about markets over time. Um, And then particularly, because a lot of what we are focused on is in the contemporary era and theories of change and how to, in fact, intervene in these debates, like the the legitimating ideas about markets and states, um, and even people and who we are that really organized the last couple of decades and that changed, Legal scholarship and a lot of policy. And those ideas, many people would call neoliberal. You can also think of them as market fundamentalists. One way to think about this, these ideas go back, often ascribed back to sort of um, Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Society, which began earlier, but they really came to the fore in the late 70s, 80s, 90s with the rise of Reagan, Thatcher, and on the global scale, the Washington Consensus, right? Ideas about markets that um, suggested, for example, that markets are the best we can do, that we ought to organize things through markets because markets are fair, uh, because they're efficient, um, and because the state, in fact, ought to be treated with suspicion as corrupt and corruptible, uh, as if you like, in the way this literature characterizes it, a kind of a monopolist, a bad uh, incumbent bureaucratic kind of force. And um, and 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 that's the big picture of kind of some of what's going on in the um, neoliberal worldview. And I think a, a very, a lot of the recent scholarship points out that these ideas were created very explicitly up against claims for redistribution and claims um, of, of sort of more democratic state making that came both at the period of anti-colonialism and in the kind of post-World uh, War II uh, civil rights era, right? So there's a very actually law interesting historical connection between those things. But for us particularly what we're interested in is how those ideas work their way into law. So how did the law of everything from contracts to intellectual property to health law get reorganized to prioritize efficiency and to treat markets um, as if they had their own rules? You had to not, you had to not break those rules, um, and that the market should really be kind of organizing society and politics kind of rather than the other way around. And so the purpose of political economy is bring politics back into our discussions of the economy. And part of what we also want to do is update the concept of political economy, which goes back to people like Smith and Marx with ideas about how structural inequality today has to be thought of not only in terms of class, but also with with a lot of attention to race, um, gender, and other kinds of subordination that I think nowadays we should think intersectionally about. Um, So that's the kind of big picture picture about um, the idea, and it's to kind of build new conceptions about and, and, and make people aware of how law constructs markets, right? Markets are actually made of law, and law is a lot of how these ideas get embedded into our policies. And so then trying to trace, like, how is it that intellectual property law, which is what I work on often, how did the law of patents and so forth change so that it became the only obvious thing to do was to have drugs that would be so expensive that most people who needed them couldn't afford them. And that was just too bad, and there's just not very much we can do about it, right? And similarly, in the kind of healthcare space, well, the only rational thing to do is everybody's got to have skin in the game, and so you got to build healthcare systems. Oh, I'm sorry, even for poor people, uh, where everyone's got skin in the game, because that's the most effective way. And of course, the definitions of what's effective and efficient are organized in such a way as they're deeply biased. They're not neutral, and that's part of what we're trying to uncover, right? They get cast as neutral, but they're not, and that they're part of, in fact, the story of, of heightening inequality and concentration of power um, in the last couple of decades. And we want to build alternatives. Right.
0: So, in, in, in many ways, it's a theoretical framework that informs the kinds of narratives that people tell about the how how our society is organized Right so so it in some ways pushes back against the idea of market being sort of a central organizing framework, or the rules that those markets lay by, and this myth or this conception, a, a religion, I guess, of, about the invisible hand and sort of the role of these unspoken rules, natural order of things. Is Absolutely.
1: that right? right? And we try to sort of technically show, like it turns out money comes from the state, right? And so the like central banking is a really big topic among folks, because it's hugely important for things about financing like how do we finance medicare for all well you got to know something about how money is created and so forth but also um yeah thinking about all kinds of narratives that get built about why the economy is more important than our lives you know which is now coming back to the conversation about covid uh and in fact the economy apparently is something that we just have to follow its rules and um and whether or not we do something like replace people's income like so that they can social distance it often looks kind of out of bounds as a policy choice um uh, when we think about things um in in the framework of uh, kind of a neoliberal
0: approach, yeah, and and so it's in many ways it's uh, it's also a conversation about values because you know from a public health perspective we talk about sort of the health of the public being the supreme value of interest, whereas uh, the way that our society is organized may or may not actually agree with that. We saw that play out very clearly in how people responded to policy um, measures to address public health versus the economy, and 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 trying to. To make sense of the ordering of those um, values in the policy choices, Greg, I, I wonder if you can sort of bring us back to earth in, in terms of how do you see these narratives play out in public health responses to COVID-19 or the lack thereof. You've you've talked and, and written a lot about this, and and you and Amy co-authored a um, series in the Boston Review about these issues. So how do you see this as impacting
2: our public health response to the current pandemic? Well, I mean, you know, we've been talking the past few minutes about law and political economy as a theoretical framework for understanding the world, but it's had these disastrous effects on real lives. Um, and we can, and I think what Amy and I do in the Boston Review pieces is chart sort of the, not just the neoliberal experiment effect on public health and social services and healthcare in the U.S., but the way capitalism is structured in the U.S. along racial lines, which has set us up for, for sort of devastating health disparities that predate, you know, the Reagan administration predate COVID. And I think, in the first piece, we talk about you know the aftermath of the Civil War, things like the Rural Hospitals Act in the 1940s and 50s um, that were designed to expand rural hospital capacity in the in the South. But the the vote was only um, possible by giving Southern senators uh, the guarantee that they could decide where where those hospitals went in the future. So their their governors could put them in in communities that were uh, 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 frankly predominantly white rather than African American, and how sort of the whole sort of experiment um, in market driven Healthcare has really been under this idea that if we have to give healthcare to all, that means we have to give it to everybody, and that includes African Americans, Latinos, and other of color. And so we've had sort of not just fifty years, but more than two hundred years of sort of inequality uh, in access to the franchise and in economy, and all these sort of social um, things that many of us take for granted. And it's left us uh, highly vulnerable to this epidemic. The reason we've had a sort of disastrous response isn't just because Donald Trump is insane, but it's because we we have a fractured healthcare system, which um, is is driven by market incentives, um, whether you're uh which teaching hospital or a, or, or a community hospital, you're suffering under sort of this neoliberal experiment that Amy has charted out so eloquently. But the whole idea that countries around the world have been able to sustain their, their, their populaces through this, this, ter- these terrible times because they've had a social safety net that can keep them, keep them from, from, from hitting the ground when they fall. Uh, Denmark and other countries have uh, reimbursed salaries up to 80, 90% over time. People don't have to worry about where their healthcare is coming from. Housing has been dealt with in many countries. And so we set ourselves up for um, a, a difficult path ahead. Even if, if Trump was not in 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 power during the, the this you know worst pandemic since 1918, um, our, we were structurally vulnerable more than any other sort of industrialized country to the to the sort of uh, catastrophe we see out, unrolling right now.
1: I mean, I think you can also really see the kind of hollowing out of this of the capacity of the state all over the response, um, you know, sort of top to bottom at the local level as well as the national level. That you know we really we're not set up to be able to respond well, and that's because of a long standing kind kind of attack really on the on the infrastructure that we need to provide care to people um, and the deliberate organization of that infrastructure in such a way that lots of people are entirely left out you know think about you know the questions of you know how immigrants access healthcare care people who are undocumented think about you know prisons all of that you know it's a very deliberate design to, to leave certain people out that puts of course uh, all of us um, at, at risk in the sense it's much harder to provide a public oriented response when you've got these kind of structurally racist and, and kind of exclusionary ideas about who's entitled to, to resources um, that really govern
2: yeah and I think it's important to take it out of the sort of bu- the partisan lens of Democrats versus Republicans we we've had uh, sort of uh, a, a devastating cuts to public health workforce around the country over the past 10 years going back into the Obama administration where we've had I think we've, they've lost 55,000 jobs across the country there's been a 10 percent budget cut in CDC uh, prevention uh, CDC funding over the past 10 years and we spent two 2.3 cents on the dollar for on public health that we do for for, for sort of end of life or or or, or specialty health care and so this is sort of something we've um, accepted across the board as a society and it's left us uh, in great peril today how does this inform you thinking
0: you've proposed a number of policy ideas and, and kind of structural fixes i guess you know there's two levels to it one being a narrative changing the narrative around social organization and the role of law and you know what values law should uphold um, and that's one area. And then the other area is from a technical standpoint, how do we use these ideas to paint, you know, a more functional vision of our society and, and, and um, you know, sort of create the structures that we need to actually be functional?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll say a little bit about the narrative. I mean, I think very fundamentally, part of what we need to do is to, to create um, a narrative um, about the kind of organizing the economy democratically, right? We can have the economy we choose. And if we choose to organize the economy so that people, in fact, have unemployment insurance that makes sense, or basic income, or other kinds of structural supports, you know, Medicare for all is going to be part of that, right? Um, We can have that kind of economy, and we have to figure out, you know, and there's a lot of people working in this landscape to talk about exactly how we can have that, you know, we should democratize the economy. And we should also um, think about how to put care at the center of, you know, one of the things that gets marginalized in conversations about markets is all of the unpaid work um, that we're all so many of us doing in a different way now. Um, so recentering care, for example, is a really important part of I think pushing back against a narrative that kind of assumes that so much reproductive work just happens off camera. Uh, well, it's actually is off camera for me, <laughs> but you guys. Um, but you know, it's all happening off camera and um, and not compensated and not accounted for and not paid well for the people who get paid to do it and all the rest of it. So, so there's a big piece about that. Those shifting narratives and and I guess um, you know maybe Greg do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of job core idea that we've we've talked about yeah. and how
2: that connects to this? Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting. Before this all broke out, we heard certain political candidates talking about bold structural reforms and then sort of passing into a, a phase where, you know, we were going to get a consensus candidate and, and, and sort of really more of the same. And it's pretty clear now that more of the same has got us where we are. And I think what Amy and I tried to do in the final Boston Review piece is think about a new politics of care. Um, and it really is the basis for a redefinition of how we think about how we treat each other as a society. And we talked about a community health core um, modeled on the workers' Work Progress Administration uh, from the New Deal era, but it's really, there's been lots of discussions about testing, contact tracing, and isolation. Um, but what Amy and I try to get across in the article is that that's a, a pretty deficient notion of what needs to be done to, to, to lift communities up through this pandemic. And that um, even contact tracers that are working now are picking up the phones and talking to people have far, far greater issues to deal with that will keep them from, from being able to successfully self-isolate, whether it's questions about eviction or getting access to food or everybody in the family being unemployed or an abusive relationship in the in, in the household. And that if we're going to build a community health core, we're going to deal with something beyond the sort of uh, epidemic control strategy that sort of would be the sort of technocratic way to think through these problems in public health. And it's to think about how do we address the sort of, again, centuries-old disparities in healthcare, which are being played out in zip codes and census tracts across the country that, that are not just about COVID, they're about HIV or diabetes or breast cancer or uh, a whole host of other police violence. Police violence. Um, how do we deal with these these issues in a structural way? And we think it's by building a, a community health corps from the ground up. That's not necessarily people who are trained in public health schools or medical schools or law schools, but are people who know their communities well and know what they need. Uh, and for fundamental pieces of, of of sort of the public health work that needs to be done, it's built on trust and caring and community. And and some of the other basic skills can be can be taught very quickly. You know, particularly around contact tracing and epidemic control, but also you know, referrals to other services. And I think the the heartening thing is that bills by some of the members of Congress are starting to sort of take on some of these expanded sort of, sort of community caring tasks as part of their proposal. Um, it's, it's also been interesting to see that the way um, unions and other sort of big political actors in our country are thinking about um, moving beyond the status quo um, in, in a moment that seems everything seemed tenable enough to people, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, in terms of, of, of certain aspects of health care. And social services for the past twenty to thirty years, but now it all seems pretty broken. And I think we have an opportunity here to to sort of get out of this this pandemic with a path to better health for all um, that you know, you know many have been calling for you know for many many decades now. And I think the only way to do that is to is to harken back to what Amy was saying at the beginning of this conversation is to reorient our vision about how we think about the law, the economy, politics, and public health. And I think that's what the Boston Review pieces sort of try to do is chart the sort of origins of our crisis in our past and then plot a path to the future. Towards something that's more oriented towards a new politics of care. You
1: know, I think part of the idea with the Community Health Corps is it's a jobs program and it should become a a way of thinking about, you know, moving towards, you know, creating jobs that people are going to need because this this crisis is going to go on. And, you know, if we can embed these kinds of jobs, not just for the crisis, but beyond, you know, that starts to become a way to address, you know, the carnage that's going on in communities of color right now, which was happening from other things before COVID um, and is happening in other ways in rural areas that also lack the health service that they need, right? And so it's a way to, to do that, but also planting a seed that I think, you know, again, thinking more broadly about our politics, you know, thinking maybe people are entitled to a job and a good job that pays good wages and it's flexible so that we, because we know they have care obligations and um, and and so forth. So I mean, I think part of what we're trying to do is also to connect to some broader um, thinking about reorganizing our political economy towards more social entitlements um, and towards kind of power building that we need to do, uh, for example, by organizing workers and creating jobs that have organizing protections in them. We probably don't have time to discuss it here, but I think there's a lot of other structural things that we should be thinking about too, like reorganizing how R&D works for pharmaceuticals and access to medicines. And there's pieces of that agenda which are connected in various ways, although Greg and I didn't write about them so much, um, to this broader idea about reshaping our economy in ways that kind of serve us rather than um, exploit us.
0: That's a a complex but inspiring note to end on. I think that I want to just mention that we will be linking to your boss, and review pieces on our website. So if folks want to learn more, those will be available. And also the law and political economy blog will be linked to as well on our on the um, public health law watch website. I want to thank you both for being here. This briefing is produced by Faith Cowich and we will be, and also Bethany Saxon at Temple. So we'll see you next time. Stay safe and be well.